I'd like to welcome you back to the afternoon service. Appreciate each of you who have stayed uh, with us today. Once again, I want to say how much I appreciate the invitation to be here and uh, recognizing that I almost hit an hour this morning. I promise you this afternoon we will not touch that amount of time. But I do want to look at a few things with you that hopefully will be encouraging and motivating to you tonight or this afternoon. I want to look at the life of a man named Stephen. And you may be familiar with Stephen and with his story. He's considered the first Christian martyr. Really, he's the first one that we have record of. Um, may or may not have actually been the first, but he's the first one that we have record of in Scripture. And there's a lot of things, I think, about the story of Stephen that we can apply to our life to help us to live a better Christian and righteous walk as we go through life. So I want to look first in Acts chapter 6 to kind of set up the story about who Stephen was. In Acts the 6th chapter, this is where we're introduced to this man. And basically what's going on in Acts chapter 6 is there's a group of people that come up to the apostles and they say, our widows are being neglected in the daily ministration. And what they meant was there was a daily ministry that went on each day where the widows and those that couldn't necessarily provide for themselves were taken care of by the church. And the church made sure that they had food and the things that they would need to live. And so this group comes to the apostles and they say, our widows are being neglected. They're not getting the things that they need to live and to survive. Whether or not that was true or not, we don't know, but that's the way that they felt. Well, the apostles looked into this issue and they thought, well, you know, we can step down from preaching and teaching Jesus to try to make sure everybody's being fed, but that wouldn't be good because we need to be out preaching Jesus. So they said, here's the solution. Look out among yourselves and pick some men that are worthy and that are faithful to take care of making sure that this ministry uh, goes smoothly. So in verse 3, it says, Wherefore, brethren, this is the apostle speaking, says, Look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And then notice in verse 8, it describes Stephen and says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Now, the word deacon is not used in this passage, although the root word for deacon is used in that word ministration at the beginning. Uh, and many people feel like these seven men were the first ordained deacons of the church. Uh, whether or not that's true, basically their responsibilities are in line with generally what deacons do in the church, and that is to make sure that the physical needs of the church are met. And so these seven men were selected, and among these seven men was a man named Stephen. And in a couple of different places, it describes him as being a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And then in verse 8, he was full of faith and power and did great wonders and miracles among the people. So this was a guy that was out preaching, he was out teaching, he was performing miracles, he had spiritual gifts that he was able to put on display and use for the glory of Christ. And this was a man that was out doing his best to shed the light of Christ. And also, of course, fulfilling his responsibility given here of making sure that daily ministry was taken care of and the widows were being taken care of like they needed to be. But Stephen got into some problems in his teaching and in his preaching. In uh, Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 9, it says, There arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and the Cyrenians, and the Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So basically what happens is Stephen is out and about, and he's teaching Jesus, and he's being that good Christian man full of faith and power and of the Holy Ghost. He's out doing his best as a Christian, and he's disputing with some guys. 
and they're unable to resist the wisdom with which he speaks. In other words, they lost the debate, the argument, whatever you want to call it. They were convicted. He was teaching Jesus in an effective way that cut to their heart. But instead of them repenting or showing that type of a reaction to it, instead they did something different. They suborned men. They basically paid off some people to come and to say false things about Stephen, to get Stephen in trouble because they were angry at the fact that they weren't able to resist the wisdom that he was using in teaching Jesus. It goes on in verse 12, it says, They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And so they take him and they drag Stephen before the Sanhedrin council and they're saying all these false things about him, speaking lies about what Stephen's been preaching. All Stephen's really been doing is teaching Jesus and using the wisdom and the faith and the power that God had given him to teach that message. They didn't like that, so they drag him before the council. They say all these false things and the high priest looks down at Stephen and he says, Are these things so? Well, this is Stephen's chance. This is his opportunity to defend himself. And to explain to the high priest and the council why it is that he shouldn't be on trial and he shouldn't be being punished for what he's doing. But instead of that, like we would think of a, of a court system today and providing your defense and you have an attorney and you're providing evidence as to why the charges aren't true, that's not the way Stephen defended himself. In fact, in all of chapter 7 there, the first parts of chapter 7, go read that sometime. We're not going to read it this afternoon, but Stephen's defense basically was to tell them about their own Jewish history and how every time that God sent them a prophet or somebody to tell them what they needed to do, they persecuted that prophet and they put that prophet to death. And then he ends his speech by accusing them of doing the very same thing with the Savior of mankind. He says in verse 51, "...ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted?" And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. Now here Stephen is standing before a council of men that hold his life in their hands. They have the power to commit Stephen to death, to a punishment of death, or to free him and let him go. And instead of defending himself and explaining why the charges aren't true, he accuses them of doing the same thing that their forefathers did in persecuting the prophets, only he says, you've betrayed and murdered the Son of God. What boldness that Stephen spoke with before this council of people that held his very life in their hands. And in verse 54, as you can imagine, they didn't like Stephen's accusation, true as it was. It says, And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So Stephen boldly proclaims to this council exactly what they have done in betraying and murdering the Son of God. They're angry, they're mad, they run upon him, they grab him, they drag him outside of the city, and one by one they begin picking up stones off the ground and hurling those stones towards Stephen. 
And as those stones are pelting him and bringing him closer and closer towards death, Stephen looks upon the people that have accused him and that are stoning him, and he asks God not to lay that sin to their charge. And then Stephen dies. And his request of God there is reminiscent of another request that another dying man made in Scripture. And that, of course, would be Jesus, right? As he looked down at those that had nailed him on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And here Stephen is really fully, truly living out his faith in his life and in his death. And as he's drawing his last breath, he's asking God to forgive those that are stoning him. Stephen's sacrifice of faith is a, is a wondrous thing to behold. But you know, that's the kind of faith that Jesus has asked each and every one of us to have. Jesus has asked us to be his in life and in death. You know, you and I are blessed in this country in 2017 where we don't necessarily face this kind of persecution. We don't face the danger of being dragged outside the city and stoned to death. But there are other parts of the world where Christians do face that. There are times in, in history that people have faced that. And there could be times in the future where we may have to face that. And Jesus has called us to the kind of faith that says, whether it's through living, I'll serve you. Or if it's through dying, I'll serve you. But I'm not going to give up. We talked to this morning about overcoming sin and changing the path that we're walking. If we choose to walk that Christian life, this is the level of commitment that we're being asked to bring to the table. Something that says, I'm going to serve you in life or in death, just as Stephen was willing to do. You know, his Christianity, I think, exemplifies Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. That scripture that says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This passage we quote a lot of times and talk about the fact that we need to not be like the world, but we need to be different. You know, that word transformed there comes from the Greek word metamorpho, and that's kind of the root word for where we get the word metamorphosis today. And if you think about the concept of metamorphosis, such as a caterpillar becoming a butterfly, it's a change. It's something going from one thing into something completely different. That's what we're supposed to do when we come to Christ. Is that old self, that one thing that we were before, is supposed to be changed into something totally different? Because, you know, Stephen's defense is an example of that difference. Because the human element of providing a defense before a council that could kill you would be to go, hey, what they're saying about me is not true. And here's why. In fact, I'll bring my own witnesses that, that make sure and show exactly what I said. And then I wasn't speaking all these blasphemous things. I didn't say, but he didn't do that. He was willing to instead look at the very men that had the power to kill him and tell them the truth, exactly what they needed to hear. And that's because he was a transformed Christian. He was something, he was someone rather, whose mind had been changed and was not conformed to the world, was not like the world. There's a lot of things about our Christianity that are supposed to be different from the world. And there's things sometimes that other people might look at and they say, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that you would think that way. It doesn't make sense that you would react that way. When Jesus tells people to turn the other cheek, it doesn't make sense to do that from a human side. If someone's going to slap me on the cheek, it makes sense from a human side of things to slap them on the cheek. But Jesus says, turn the other cheek. There's things about Christianity that are just different. That's how Jesus designed it. He wants us to show something different than the world shows. And Stephen exemplified that in his life. Unfortunately, a lot of people take the attitude that we see in Matthew chapter 24 and 37 through 39. Where it says, as in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. 
so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. You know, he talks here about the day when Jesus is going to return back and he says too many people are going to be like Noah. You know, in the days of Noah and that great flood that was coming, most of the entire world, save Noah and his family, were just living life. They were just eating and drinking and marrying and giving marriage. They were just doing the life thing every day and didn't realize until it was too late that the flood was upon them and their destruction was near. And he says it's going to be the same thing with the day that Jesus comes back. People are just going to be living life. They're going to be focused on their hobbies and they're going to be focused on work and they're going to be focused on everything but the fact that Jesus is coming back. And there's going to be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment where our actions and our life is put on display and judged. And just like in the days of Noah, people don't realize that and they just live life to live life and they're not focused on the eternal spectrum, the the eternal side of life. And I want to encourage you to instead live your Christian life as Stephen did. Don't be bogged down by the things of this life. Now, this life is necessary. There's important things in this life to take care of. And while we're alive, it's important that we do everything in this life, whether it's work or anything else, to the best of our ability. Living for the next life doesn't mean giving up on this one. Living for the next life means putting everything that we can in a Christian righteous way into this one. But at the end of the day, recognize what Stephen knew. But it's not ultimately about this life. And if it means dying because I'm a servant of Christ, then I'll die because I'm a servant of Christ. And I hope that we never have to face situations like Stephen faced. But if we did, I hope that that's the kind of faith that we could show that says I'll serve him in life or in death. First John chapter 2, 15 through 17, you know, Satan is going to tell you, A lot of lies to try to get you to focus in on the world, on the temporal things instead of the eternal things. The scripture says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Satan's going to try to trick you into believing that you can love the world and still be okay and right with God. You know, it's real easy to differentiate living a life of sin versus living a life as a Christian. It's harder to to differentiate as a Christian being focused, more focused on the temporal things of life, on the job and the family and the hobbies and the fun and the pleasure and the entertainment and all those things, while still going to church and while still doing the Christian-y things, It's real easy to do that and feel good about ourselves because we still go to church, you know, and we still pick up a Bible occasionally and we still do a good work here occasionally and we get involved in a ministry every once in a while and and it's it's easier to feel good about ourselves then. But maybe even while we're doing those Christian-y type things, we're still being tricked by Satan into loving the world more than we love God. And Stephen certainly didn't love the world more than he loved God. He was willing to go to the end of his life here because... The next life meant that much to him. Satan will lie to you, though. First Peter 5, verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. He's out there. You know, many times I think we forget that Satan is real. We forget that we really do have an enemy that is out there that is trying to cause us to fail. And we just feel like we treat sin like it's a personal failure. And it is. It is a lot of times, but sin isn't just a personal failure. Timothy failed here because Timothy sinned. We have an enemy out there that is trying to cause me to sin. We have an enemy out there that's trying to entrap me and cause me to turn away from God. And he's sneaky and he's crafty and he's cunning. And he'll wrap up negative things in positive packaging 
and make you think that it's okay. And he'll allow you to go to church and to do all those things and feel good about yourself as being a Christian while still tricking you into thinking that you can put money and you can put job and you can put hobbies and all those things above the love of Christ. And that's simply not true. But he'll try to encourage that false confidence. You can be right with God and you can love the world. The truth is we've got to love God more. We've got to choose. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And here specifically, he's talking about the concept of money. And many times in life, that's the decision that needs to be made because the love of money, the scripture says, is the root of all evil. And many times we pursue different things in this life of loving this life because of possessions and because of money and because of the things that can be bought and and gotten with that. The truth is, We've got to choose between the temporary things of this life or the eternal things of heaven. Stephen certainly made that choice and made it look easy for us, though I'm sure it was not easy to face what he faced. If you're willing to live that kind of a Christian life that Stephen lived, I want to tell you there's going to be some results that happen that come as a result of that. First off, you will suffer persecution. The scriptures promise that in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12. It says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Stephen lived that out fully. He suffered the worst kind of persecution. He gave his life. The ultimate persecution. You know, in our country, we already mentioned the fact that we're blessed because we don't necessarily face those things, but we face different kinds of persecution. And I think Satan has to modify his methods of persecution based upon the country, based upon the society, based upon the belief systems. And our society and our country is not at a point yet where they would sanction the public persecuting and killing of Christians. But our country is at the point that sanctions immoral behaviors, such as homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion and all sorts of other things that our society says, that's okay and that's right. You can't speak out against that. And more and more, there's an attack on Christianity that's happening. More and more, there's persecution that's coming upon us. And it's small right now. It's not the Stephen kind of persecution yet, but it's persecution. And Christianity is being persecuted even in the United States in 2017. And across the world and other places, it's much worse. And that persecution is much worse. And we have to be ready to stand through that persecution because we've been promised it will come. We will not be able to live a full Christian life without ever seeing any kind of persecution. The scripture says all that will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer that persecution. So if you choose to live that fully committed Stephen type life of faith, then be ready for the persecution that's coming. Satan will use many, many methods to do that to us. But you know, while we will suffer that persecution, Jesus Christ, our Savior, will support and will accept us. And if you go back to Acts chapter 7 and verse 55 in that story of Stephen, I don't know if you've ever if you've ever noticed that verse, but I didn't notice that verse many times reading through that until finally it popped out at me that there's something special about this verse, verse 55. It says, But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Now, what's interesting about that verse is this is the only place in the entire scriptures that talks about Jesus standing at the right hand of God. There are a lot of scriptures that talk about him sitting at the right hand, but this is the only one where he is standing at the right hand of God. And I began to ask myself, why is it that he's standing? Why in this circumstance, above any of the other times that he's mentioned at at the, the right hand of the throne of God, why is he standing here? And I don't know. The answer to that truly, I can't tell you because the scripture doesn't specify, but I can tell you what I think. 
And I think that he was standing because he wanted to give Stephen, as he allowed Stephen to see that vision into heaven and to see him. You know, when somebody walks into a room that we haven't seen in a long time that we really care about, what do we do a lot of times? We stand up and we greet them. And we outstretch our arms and we give them an embrace. And I think that's what Jesus was doing for Stephen. And I think that's why he let Stephen have that vision of heaven. Because he wanted Stephen to know, I know what you're doing. I know what you're giving. I know what you're sacrificing. And I'm here. You're about to be here with me. And he let Stephen see that. Him standing there, I imagine him with his arms outstretched. Saying, it's okay. You can get through the next few minutes because in just a little while you're going to be home. Christ will support and accept us. And you know, when I think about what Stephen saw, it makes me wonder, and I don't know because I've not died. And, and I don't know anybody that's died and come back to tell me. But I wonder if God allows somebody that's passing away. I wonder if that's my, maybe what they see. I wonder if as they're transitioning from this life to the next, they too will see Jesus standing, welcoming them, saying, you're almost home. You're almost here. Keep the faith. Keep going. And that's what Jesus did for Stephen. And how could that not have given Stephen the strength to go through with being stoned to death? Christ will support and accept us. He'll be there for us. Will we suffer persecution? Yeah. But Jesus, our Savior, is going to be there. He's going to support us. He's going to help us through it. And then ultimately, when we pass from this life, he's going to be there to welcome us home. And that gives me great comfort to think about that, not only for me, but for my loved ones and those that I care about that have passed and that have gone on, that maybe that's what they saw as they were entering into heaven. Our salvation, when we choose this kind of a life, is assured, and we can be confident in it. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is therefore no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We talked this morning about what that meant, walking after the Spirit and not the flesh. And when we truly live the things of the Spirit and we're studying and we're coming to church and we're fellowshipping and we're doing those good deeds and we're doing evangelism, we're doing all those spiritual things and we're really living that spiritual life, when we're living that life, there's no condemnation. There's no destruction that's impending for us. There's no reason for us to fear the judgment and to fear eternity. Too many times I think Christians, even good Christians that live that good life of faith, there's still a fear there. There's still a fear about judgment. There's still a fear about what if it's not good enough. And that's a skewed thinking because it's not about whether it's good enough. My actions aren't what's getting me into heaven. The grace of God is what's giving me into heaven. The blood of Christ is what's getting me into heaven. What he's asked in return is that life, that spiritual life of walking in the Spirit. And if we're walking in the Spirit and we're living that life to the best of our ability then there's no condemnation. And we can be confident in knowing that when, we, when our life here ends, we'll be in glory with Him. And there should be great comfort in that. To know that spiritual life is assured and spiritual death is avoided. Romans 8.13 says, If you live after the flesh, you will die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. There is a spiritual death that's coming for those that choose not to live this life of faith. 
And I want to encourage you to live a life of faith like Stephen did, because in that there is confidence in eternity and in our eternal destination. And we can know that hell is not an option for us. We can know that hell is not something that we have to fear because our salvation is through the blood of Christ. And we're living our life to the best of our ability to serve him in life and in death, just as Stephen did. Are you living that life after the flesh or after the spirit this afternoon? And I encourage each of you to look within yourself because I can't look at you and know. But you have to determine that for yourself. Are you walking after the flesh or are you walking after the spirit? And if you're walking after the spirit, then be confident in the reward that's coming. And that reward is coming and it will be great. John chapter 14, 1 through 3, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus said, I've got a place that I'm preparing for you. And when you come, when you pass from this life into the next, there's a place in heaven reserved for you. And that reward's going to be great. And that doesn't make me want to die tomorrow. I'd like to live a nice long life. I'd like to see my kids grow up. I'd like all of those things. But you know, no matter what happens, if my life ends tomorrow, if it ends a year from now, or 10 years from now, or 50 years from now, the goal should be that my life and my death will serve Him. And that I'll be faithful to Him each and every day, whether I have one day left, or I have a thousand days left, or I have 10,000 days left. That every day I wake up choosing to live that life of faith as Stephen did. That promise is for you, and it's for me. It's for all of us who will choose to live that kind of Christian life. So will you accept Christ's offer tonight? Christ's offer to be a Christian. His offer for that great reward. All he's asking for you is that, number one, you obey the gospel. That you give your life to him. But then that once you've obeyed that gospel and had your sins washed away, that you simply commit to him. Be that transformed kind of a person. Not conform to the world, but be different. Be okay with being different. Because that's what God has called us to be. And know that in life or in death, we'll serve him. Philippians 1 verse 20, Paul said, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as, al- as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. And I want you to think about the attitude that Paul is displaying here. That whether it's in my life or it's in my death, Christ is going to be magnified. I'm going to show him. And you know, when we die, that's an important, that's an important part of who we are. It's an important part of showing our faith. How we die is important. Whether we die scared and afraid and fearful without faith, or whether we die boldly and confidently, whether it's through persecution or it's at 100 years old. When we die, we ought to die boldly and confidently, ready to go spend eternity with our God that's promised us heaven, that in life or in death, that Christ would be magnified. And I want you to know this afternoon that death is not the end. It's just the beginning of that next step of eternity. And we don't need to fear death if we're in Christ. Stephen didn't fear death. He was ready to walk into death if that's what Christ required of him. Because he knew what awaited him on the other side. And you and I should know what awaits us as well. I'm going to read one more passage with you, and that's 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 58, where Paul writes, O death, where is thy sting? 
O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Death is not the end. It's the beginning. It's the beginning of eternity with God. Death has no power over us. Death cannot be victorious over us because Jesus has already been victorious over it. And so what is his recommendation at the end of that passage? Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Because what we're doing in this life living for Christ is not in vain. It's worth it. What Stephen did in boldly proclaiming the truth to everyone that he was around, including the council that held his life in their hands, was worth it. We might look at it from a human standpoint and say, it's not worth it, he lost his life. It was worth it to him. Because he was going to proclaim Jesus, whether it was through his life or through his death. And his death said a lot about him. And we still talk about Stephen and remember him today because of the death that he died for Christ. I think not only our life, but our death should be something that is a testament to our faith in Christ. And I hope this evening or this afternoon you will commit, if you've not already been committed to living that life of faith, that you will commit now that I'm going to be 100% in. I'm going to be like Stephen, and I'm going to proclaim truth, and I'm going to preach Jesus, and I'm going to teach everybody. I'm going to live that spiritual life. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to do all those things Jesus has asked me to do because in the end, those are the people that see that reward and see Jesus standing on the right hand of God, welcoming them home. If you're here this afternoon and we can assist you in obeying the gospel or in praying for you, we would ask that you come as we stand and sing the imitation song.